Hey folks, Scott Weingart here, and this is the MCrit Podcast. Today on the podcast, we're going to do part two of valve disasters. We did aortic and mitral regurge. Now we're going to do aortic stenosis, critical aortic stenosis, like drop dead in front of you aortic stenosis. And again, we are joined with Katrina Augustin, who is the team leader for cardiovascular MCrit. And the episode is amazing, but equally good is the write-up she did for this post. So you should check out that write-up as soon as you are done listening to the episode. Now, before we get into it, a quick ad for something that I love to do, which is coaching. Now, I've been coaching for a while now. I've kept the slot number really small, just really select clients, but I love it so much that I am now expanding uh, to a little bit more space in my schedule. So if you deal with issues of burnout, overwhelm, shift efficiency, or maybe you don't deal with issues, but you're already performing at a high level, but you think you could be even better, that there's more happiness out there, that you could actually feel better about both your work and non-work life, uh, then consider uh, contacting me uh, to find out more information about medicine coaching. There's no commitment. Uh, I'll send you some information. You get on a free chemistry call. We could talk, see if uh, there's a right fit between what you would like to get out of it and what I could offer, and we could go from there. So come to mcrit.org slash coaching. That's mcrit.org slash coaching, and uh, let me know what you're thinking. All right, let's get right into the show on acute valve disasters, the critical aortic stenosis episode. Oh, you thought we were going right in. And again, I am messing with you because this is another of the foam offerings of MCRIT. Free in its entirety, but there's a bunch of MCRIT that's not. There's a bunch of MCRIT you're missing out on, which means you're missing out on the best potential to take care of your critically ill patients, to maximize your skills in resuscitation, to get the benefit of cutting-edge information without having to read 60 journals a month. If you are interested in being the best resus doctor, whether it be critical care or emergency medicine you could be, if you're interested in not having to deal with, is this episode free or is it paid, um, then just come on over to mcrit.org slash join and uh, sign up. It's ridiculously cheap for what you're getting. It's a ton of CME. It's tax deductible. And uh, you don't have to then ever listen to an ad like this again. And you'll be taking really, really good care of your really, really sick patients. All right. Now we could really get into the episode. So we're back for valve disasters part two. We already handled the regurgitant lesions. We handled uh, ventricular septal defects in the midst of that. Now we're going to stick with one valve on this one. We're going to stick with critical aortic stenosis. And this is a scary one. Give, give me your general thoughts on this one, Trina. Agreed. I think that this is one of those that none of us get too excited to see coming in through and being the frontline docs to take care of it. It's pretty unforgiving. And I think a lot of us are scared of pathology like severe RV failure, pulmonary hypertension. I think aortic stenosis sits right up beside there. It's something that you have to have a healthy fear of and be constantly looking for it, or you can miss it till it's too late. You divided these into patients where the valve is the problem itself, or patients who are doing okay with a bad valve situation and something tipped them over the edge, some other pathology. In this one, how likely is it for patients to just have no awareness whatsoever that they have really severe aortic stenosis until they present to the ED for the first time with some bad presentation? Is that common? What's the status on that? 
I love that question because I think nowadays that is more uncommon for people to present having no idea that they have any valvular disease. So nowadays, our cardiology colleagues are pretty awesome about detecting this early. Oftentimes there's a great primary care doctor who listens to someone's heart. And this is maybe one of those times that the physical exam can really cue you in. You get that classic murmur and some of those other signs. And they say, I think you need an echo and get referred. So a lot of these patients will have an idea that they have some valvular history. Now, you and I both know, especially with COVID, more and more people are getting lost to follow-up. So is it possible that these patients got lost to follow-up and suddenly have worsening of their disease? hundred percent. Yeah. And in the populations I dealt with and most of the hospitals I work at where they don't want to see doctors, they might not be documented and they just will not come in until death's door, then that's also still possible. So you might be making the primary diagnosis in some of these less scenary care centers where we're really seeing a population that doesn't want to see physicians. All right. What we're not going to deal with primarily in this podcast, and you didn't discuss much in the post, is patients with critical aortic stenosis, but they're normotensive or hypertensive, and they just need to get some surgeon or interventional person to take care of them, but they're not crashing. Do you have anything to say on those patients before we move on to a cardiogenic shock presentation? Absolutely. I think that those patients are especially nuanced. And that's one of the reasons I didn't tackle them in the post. And part of that is the practical part. I think these are the patients that if they're stably sitting in your emergency department or make it to your ICU, you're going to consult our colleagues. The one thing I will say with these patients is remember that many of these patients have significant LV hypertrophy. And I'm sure we'll get into this in the post more, but a lot of them have diastolic dysfunction. It can be very sensitive to things that affect their preload, things like diuretics or venodilators. And potentially, if they are hypertensive or volume overloaded, they might need judicious management of this. But I definitely have seen patients become acutely decompensated in the setting of injudicious management where they get huge doses of diuresis or these medications that can decrease their preload. Yeah, I think that's the perfect summary. So if they come in and they're not crashing, leaving them alone is usually the best move until you get some true expert on there from the cardiology service, and then they can make the mistakes. 100% you, you agree. Yep. <laughs> All right. So we're dealing with a shock patient now, which is the primary thing where you don't have the potential luxury of waiting for someone else to come and take responsibility for that. And these patients could go down very quickly. And it really requires some pre-knowledge on how to keep them alive until you could hand them off to someone else's service. So that's what we'll deal with today. So why don't we stick with uh, the order you have in the post, because the post is really fantastic. So let's talk about a little bit mechanism and etiology. So where does aortic stenosis come from? Sure. So the most common mechanisms that we'll see is first of all, degenerative disease. And classically that's your tricuspid degenerative disease. That is a disease of the elderly often shows up in that kind of six to eighth decade of life and has a lot of similarities in common with like atherosclerosis. So a lot of these risk factors with hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, smoking, most of these patients will also have coexisting CAD. Now, you'll also see this present in the younger population, but specifically, oftentimes, those are the ones with bicuspid aortic valves. Frequently, if you have a patient that comes in with these symptoms and is presenting in midlife, I automatically get suspicious that this is likely a bicuspid aortic valve. And these valves cause problems earlier on. They're not able to withstand the normal stresses like the tricuspid valves are as well. And you see them start to break down and degenerate much earlier. And it's, Other is that just because the flow is being distributed over less surface area? Is that the idea? I think that's part of it. With the aberrant morphology of the valve, they end up, the flow dynamics causes earlier breakdown. And I'm not a physicist, so I'm probably not explaining <laughs> it well, but that is a part of it. Okay. 
You have rheumatic heart disease here, which we don't generally see in the States, but since it's an international podcast, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So rheumatic heart disease is less common in the developed world, but still a huge problem in the developing world. And oftentimes there you'll see these patients with coexisting, not only aortic disease, but also mitral disease. And this is really important when it comes to managing these patients, because if you're dealing with one valvular disorder, sometimes treatment is easier and more targeted. When you start dealing with two different valvular disorders, it becomes nuanced. So it is important to keep it in mind. And the third etiology that I threw in there that we don't see as often, but I think it's good to remember is valve stenosis, specifically more common in mechanical valves than bioprosthetic valves. Incidence is still pretty low. Incidence with left-sided heart valves can range anywhere from 0.5% to 8%. And sided valves can be as high as 20%. And part of that, I think, is because the right-sided valves possibly see a little lower velocity flows, and it's a little easier for them to have more stagnant blood flow and thrombosis of those valves. All right. So let's move to pathophysiology. And you have a very nice flow chart here. Why don't you walk us through it? Awesome. I have to say there's nothing that I love more than pathophysiology. And I think that aortic stenosis is just such a nice thing to see this on. Plus, whenever I can throw a Wiggers diagram and a PV loop in, I am just like so happy. Now, before everyone gets bored that's listening, I like to break down aortic stenosis just very simply. And I think of it as a structural problem that leads to a hemodynamic problem. So basically think of a very narrowed aortic valve orifice. This leads to a pressure gradient between the left ventricle and the aorta. I like to think of your normal kind of soda bottle. If you think of the plastic ones with the nice cap, if you pop that cap off and you squeeze that bottle, you're going to eject that soda really quickly. No issue. If instead you keep that cap on and you just have a couple small holes in there and a very narrow orifice to get that soda out, you really need to exert a ton of pressure on that bottle to get the soda out. And I think the same way with aortic stenosis, you end up with a significant pressure gradient between that LV and the aorta called the transvalvular pressure gradient. This gradient, unfortunately, causes a pretty significant fixed afterload on the left ventricle, which in turn increases that left ventricular pressure. The LV tries to compensate for this by hypertrophying. And I think that probably way back in medical school, you might've heard that people talk about the law of Laplace, which basically talks about wall stress, or just think of it as afterload. And this basically is just a way of saying that the left ventricular pressure times the left ventricular radius divided by thickness is equal to your wall stress. And fancy, that's kind of the fancy way of saying it, but basically think of it that as that pressure increases, the LV's way of compensating is to hypertrophy and thicken, which I think intuitively makes sense. Increasing that muscle mass is going to help maintain your stroke volume and cardiac output, which initially that's great. It's an adaptive change and it helps to compensate for a while. Unfortunately, with time that can become maladaptive. And eventually as that LV becomes so hypertrophied, you end up with diastolic dysfunction and you could even end up with downstream fibrosis and even systolic dysfunction as well. And that's where these patients really can get into trouble. Yeah. And you mentioned later on, and it's worth a little bit of discussion now, it's also going to have an effect in the coronary perfusion in the ability of the vasculature to supply enough blood flow, both from the increased pressures in the LV and from the increased size. Maybe just talk about that for a bit. 
Sure. So I think it's important to understand that coronary perfusion pressure is basically your aortic diastolic pressure minus your left ventricular end diastolic pressure. And in severe aortic stenosis with cardiogenic shock, you take a hit at two sides to that. First of all, your aortic diastolic pressure is going to be lower. And then your left ventricular end diastolic pressure with that fixed afterload, you're going to have a pretty significant increased pressure. So overall, your coronary perfusion pressure is going to end up being low. And remember, you have this pretty hypertrophied thick muscle, so it's going to have an increased demand and really going to need an increased supply, which can be very difficult because especially with that increased LVED pressure, you even can have like endocardial compression, and it really makes it hard to increase that supply to those vessels. And I think most of us remember this probably from med school, but perfusion to the LV occurs not only occurs during diastole, but also unlike other areas of our body, where if we need more oxygen, we just extract more perfusion to the heart is really dependent on blood flow. Like it is pretty much most of the oxygen gets extracted. So if you can't increase the blood flow to that area, you're really risking ischemia. And these LVs can be pretty unhappy when they're this hypertrophied. Now, when it gets really bad, it starts backing up through the mitral valve, back to the lungs potentially pulmonary hypertension, eventually heart failure. That's a bad situation, right? That's a bad day. And that's why I always tell people when you're looking at these aortic valves, I think it's so easy to like take one look at that huge hunk of calcium and be like, oh my word. And we totally forget to think, do I have functional mitral regurge because my LV has dilated and in turn have increased pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, pulmonary edema? Is my RV failing because now I have type two pulmonary hypertension? So I think that it's really important because it really changes your management when these patients present with RV failure as well as pulmonary hypertension on top. Now, you insisted on this post on mentioning a stethoscope, and I get why. So I'm going to cover my ears, and you discuss the physical exam findings that people might hear if they actually still carry one of these around. Scott, I realized how terrible I am at this because I'm currently on infectious disease, and I have to say, infectious disease doctors find every physical finding that no one else does. They can tell you things about your patients that you've seen for a week that you didn't know. And so I've been forced to carry a stethoscope the last week and I realize how rusty I am. But for those people who are much better than me at this, the classic findings are going to be your right sternal border, crescendo, decrescendo murmur that you can hear. The worse the stenosis is, the more late peaking that murmur will be. You might also hear a diminished S2, which makes sense because as that valve becomes so calcified, you really might not hear that nice closing snap. And it can also be a paradoxical split S2 where the aortic component is going to come later. I think that these are all kind of important things. You can also see pulsus parvus et tardis, which I can barely pronounce because obviously I walk, look for it so many times. And I'm sure every cardiologist who listens to this is right now just like hurting in their heart. But basically think of it as a delayed carotid upstroke that is felt after S2 rather than simultaneous with S2, which can also help to signify that you have pretty significant aortic stenosis. All right. So that being said, we will move on now to the more technological means of diagnosis. And that's generally going to be echocardiography. Now, you really, I think, did a fantastic job on elucidating what you describe as an easy pathway, which is easier than what the cardiologists are doing. I think I'm going to refer most of our listeners to the beat by beat because it's going to be really tough to discuss it here. I'm going to try to simplify it even further. And you're going to do what you did last time and tell me, nope, too simple, can't work. But we'll see what happens here. Can you have critical AS with a completely normal on, for instance, parasternal lung? 
I think it's pretty unlikely. Now, obviously you and I both know this. I feel that ultrasound and echo is very like performer dependent. So depending on how you are cutting through on that peristernal long, could you give yourself an impression that it's fine? Potentially. But most of these patients that have severe critical aortic stenosis, you are going to see some calcification, which is pretty easy to see on a peristernal long. And just looking at that valve, you're going to be like, Hmm, is it really opening? So for the most part, this is one that I think is a little bit easier to diagnose just at a quick glance. All right. That makes me feel a little bit better because, and again, you should get the valve in a couple of different shots, make sure you're not missing anything. But if it looks completely normal, it's flooding open with each heartbeat and there's no calcification, it looks normal. You can feel pretty good. Not that they don't have aortic stenosis, but that you're probably not dealing with critical AS. If on the other hand, oh, that doesn't look right. I don't know quite why, but it's not really opening very well. If you don't have the skills to do the things that Trina mentions in the post, you got to get someone who does or get the patient to someone who does to really make a further diagnosis. And it's worth really pouring over the post to understand, but it is going to require measurements of Doppler. Even the easy is a little complex. And I always worry that people who are performing the basics of emergency ultrasound, they could do a fast, maybe they could tell you if there's a pneumothorax or not. I think it's more harm than good for them to try to be getting these measurements. But if you have a modicum of skill, then 100%, this is an exam you should learn to do. You should learn how to interrogate the valves for critical disease. Is there anything further you'd want to say beyond me just referring them to the post on this stuff? No, I think that's perfect because I think that pictures help so much. And I did try to break it down. I will like to plug that I did try to make it as simple as I could. And that basically the two measurements that I really think you need to get, if you can get yourself a really good apical five chamber view, you can do pretty much everything. I'd like to plug that if you're someone who uses spectral Doppler, go for it. Start practicing with this. It's really not that hard. Yeah. I guess the breakdown we could say is if you're capable of doing stroke volume assessments through EI, this is the exam set for you. And if you have no 100%. idea what we're talking about, maybe don't touch it. I think that's perfect. I love it. <laughs> All right. So let's slide into management. Let's pretend either you said that valve doesn't look right and you ask the patient, they're like, oh yeah, my doctor says I need a valve replacement sometime, but I've been putting it off because I don't want to come to the hospital. Or you look back at an old echo and there's bold face everywhere saying critical AS. Let's move on to management. The first thing you ask is again, the question we brought up earlier. Is this a further deterioration of the valve itself and the patient has nothing else going on? Or is this a superimposed disease that has caused decompensation of a valve situation that wasn't great, but the patient was doing okay. Tell me what this question really is going to change in our management. Absolutely. So I think that this question is important in all valvular disease. And that's because these patients that come in that have chronic valvular disease that suddenly decompensate due to a superimposed systemic illness, say AFib with RVR, say sepsis, GI bleed, many of those patients, we can stabilize using skills that we were taught to do through emergency medicine, critical care. And yes, they might eventually need that valve looked at, but that's probably not the emergency today. The emergency right now is good ABCs and critical care management that we all are very comfortable doing versus that patient that's coming in and they are decompensated because this is truly acute valvular disease or acute decompensation of their valvular disease. I think these patients, it's really important that yes, we're still doing all the ABCs, all of the good critical care management, but we really need to be getting our Cole or even interventional cardiology colleagues involved much sooner because a lot of these patients will need mechanical circulatory support or other stabilizing therapy. And these are not patients that have super forgiving pathology that you can get it wrong for five hours and then call someone. These are people that we need to be on it up front. 
Love it. Love it. Now you have a seven-step management strategy here. We're going to go through them one by one. Step one, maintain adequate diastolic blood pressure. 100%. And one of the things that I always try to talk to the residents about when we're talking on rounds is the first thing with the heart is making sure that you are perfusing the heart. Hearts get very angry if they do not have adequate perfusion. And I think especially in aortic stenosis, where most of these patients have significant LVH, they have this huge hulking muscle. They really have that increased demand. You need to perfuse that muscle. One of the things I think historically, many people were taught, you just read, this is when you reach for phenylephrine, pure alpha agonist. And it's not that is wrong. In fact, I know that a lot of my cardiac anesthesia colleagues will use that for induction for these patients with severe aortic stenosis when they take them to the OR to get these valves fixed. So definitely on patients that have the classic kind of high flow, high gradient aortic stenosis where their ejection fraction seems fine. It's a great drug. It avoids the chronotropic response that you can get with some other pressors like epinephrine. So you're able to maintain your perfusion to the LV without causing significant tachycardia. So I think that's a great option. I think another one is norepinephrine. I love norepi because it's available everywhere. I think it's a drug that everyone is very comfortable using. It's something that normally can be hung very rapidly because we have access to it. And I think especially on some of these patients that are starting to have some systolic dysfunction, it can give you a little bit of beta one agonism. So a little bit of inotropy without causing near as much of that chronotropic or that tachycardic response that you see with epi. Why does no one discuss vasopressin in these settings, which is an agent I think most of EM has more familiarity with than they do phenylephrine at this stage. of the game. I think that's a great question because frankly, the literature barely talks about that. And I think that part of that might be because a lot of this literature comes from a lot of cardiology sources and vasopressin is historically a drug that I don't think was used as much in those settings. Frankly, I think that it could be a great drug there. Again, you're not getting that chronotropic response. It's a drug that, as you mentioned, EM and critical care docs are comfortable using. It's easily accessible. So I think using that in the same patient that you'd be using phenylephrine for is a great idea. Just remember here again, if you have a patient that has decreased contractility and is coming in with a failing LV in this setting, it is straight up afterload. So maybe not the best option there. Now, people always get concerned that they're going to increase the afterload past the valve. But my feeling from the pathophysiology has always been in the range of maps we're looking at, that's not an issue because the valve itself is going to be the major resistor. And we're not adding resistance by raising them up to a map of 65, 75. But people get really concerned. Then they're like, what's the number? What's the number? And my feeling is the number needs to be at least map of 65, but they might even deserve a little bit more because of their impaired coronary filling. What are your feelings? On First of all, I love so much that you've asked this question because this is something that has bothered me for such a long time. Absolutely. And I think I talk about this just a little bit in the post that basically what the LV is seeing this fixed obstruction. And really the LV, the pressure it's seeing is the aortic pressure plus this transvalvular gradient. So I think that's where some people initially are like, we really don't want to increase that aortic pressure because we're going to increase the pressure that the LV is seeing. But realize maybe if you're causing your systemic pressure to be 160 right. systolic, 180 systolic, 100%, absolutely you are. And that will be detrimental. But 
you, these patients really do need a map that is sufficient to perfuse them. So that map of 65, I think is a bare minimum. In fact, I think you're going to see cardiac anesthetists pushing their maps even higher because a lot of these patients really need to have an adequate map to perfuse their coronaries. Remember that they have this fixed obstruction. You increasing their map to 65, 75, probably even 80 is really not going to cause an increase in their afterload for them that's harmful to them. That is exactly my feelings as well, is I shoot for map of 75 to 80 because I, I don't think I'm making it worse. And I know there's a potential for coronary ischemia if I'm not providing enough. All right. I'm so glad you know that. All right. Step two, optimize preload. Now, this is in contradistinction to our previous one on the regurgitant lesions. Why don't you talk about this? Absolutely. And I think you and I both talked about how most of those regurgitant lesions, they come in and they're wet. So realize that patients with aortic stenosis have a pretty narrow Frank Starling curve. These patients have significant LVH and diastolic dysfunction. So they are dependent on higher filling pressures than you or I would with a normal heart. Many of these patients can benefit from a little fluid. One of the things I tell people is just do a quick look. Often most of us are shooting a chest x-ray. You can obviously take a look. Are they floridly wet or do they look okay? Most people are pretty comfortable throwing an ultrasound on looking for diffuse beelines. Unless these patients are floridly volume overloaded, I err on tanking them up a little bit. In fact, leaving them even a little wet if I need to, giving them 250 ml bolus and reassessing. Because since they are so preload dependent, you can often get a little bang for your buck by giving them this fluid. Granted, these are not the patients I hang a liter of fluid or two and walk away, which is almost no cardiogenic shock patient. But I do think it's important to realize that these patients are going to need a little bit more filling pressures than the normal patients will. Absolutely. All right. Step three, this is the big one. Avoid tachycardia. 100%. And I think that this is somewhat self-explanatory, but remember that anybody with significant diastolic dysfunction is going to need that diastolic filling time. And I think that it's really important to not have these patients come in tachycardic to 120, 130. And that's one of the reasons I worry sometimes about epinephrine and a presser like that is because some people do really have a significant chronotropic response and you can really limit their diastolic filling time, which in turn is going to decrease their stroke volume and cardiac output. Also remember with that stenotic valve, they really do need time to eject blood through that valve as well. So tachycardia can be super harmful. And I think you classically can see this in patients that come in with AFib with RVR, they can decompensate so severely. They lose that atrial kick and they're in a rapid rate. Those are patients that get sick real fast. Yeah. And I don't think the standard ED set of steps is really appropriate in that case. I, you mentioned later on in your management strategy, avoid things that affect contractility like calcium channel blockers and beta blockers. This is not the patient to try diltiazem on, in my opinion. I think your threshold to cardiovert is so much lower in these patients if they really are crapping out in front of you with a tachycardia. What do you feel? hundred percent agree. In fact, I think that cardiazem is one of the scariest drugs that I have ever seen. And I think it's because so many of us, especially in emergency medicine, we're taught this patient comes in with AFib with RVR, you get your deltiazem drip out, you get their bolus. And oftentimes that happens before you even are looking at their heart, before you're doing any of that. You don't know, is their ejection fraction 20%? And especially in these patients here with critical aortic stenosis that are just barely hanging on, you can really push them over the edge. I'm 100% with you. I reach for cardioversion much quicker. All right. It does bring up the annoying issue though of the best way to 
sedate these patients. And I'm loathe to admit this on the podcast, but I think these patients might feel their shock a little bit more than my standard patients. I do treat them with something like fentanyl and maybe a little bit of benzodiazepine. I am reluctant to do a procedural sedation at a deep level on these patients in the setting of their critical AS. It's unfortunate, but it's the truth. Number four is support contractility. And we mentioned this a little bit, but speak to it where this step really shines on its own. Yeah. So this is one of the things that I put in there and I hesitated a little bit as I added it to the post, because I do think it's important for patients that are coming in with critical severe aortic stenosis that have a decreased ejection fraction, because some of these really do need some support. But I think it's also important to be careful with them. If you're starting them on epi or dubutamine, those drugs really do have a significant chronotropic response. And some patients really will not tolerate that. So I think it's trial and error and every patient is different. These are patients that I would be getting my consultants involved in very early on. People are going to ask, so I have to ask just to put it out there. This is always our, the holy grail is we want a inotropic agent that doesn't have chronotropy. The only one out there is not great, but it's worth asking about. So does digoxin have a role in these situations or is it just, it's going to not kick in at any point. It's going to be utile. Theoretically, digoxin sounds great because you're not going to get that chronotropic effect. You get that lovely inotropy. The problem with digoxin, and by the way, I do love digoxin. I think that it has a lot of uses and I feel like it's coming back in vogue a little bit. I'm excited about that. I think it's a hard drug to use on that front line because it does take some time for it to fully be working. And on these patients that are decompensating in front of you, it's hard to get that bang for your buck quick enough. It's something to think about, but it's not something that I find myself reaching for initially because a lot of it is the long onset of action. And then also a lot of these patients come in fairly decompensated with a significant kidney injury at this point. And so it is something that you have to be careful with when dosing it. All right. Fair. Step five, treat reversible causes. Absolutely. And I think I already mentioned patients that come in with AFib with RBR that can have a significant decompensation secondary to that loss of atrial kick and that rapid ventricular rate, low threshold to cardiovert. Other things that I think commonly cause decompensation in these patients are things that decrease their preload. The patient that comes in that is having a GI bleed or that had significant gastro and has been having vomiting and diarrhea. I think it's really easy for these patients to get decompensated so quickly, especially as their valves are like close to that or meeting that criteria for severe aortic stenosis. And that's just the easy stuff that we can treat, giving them blood, giving them fluids, obviously doing it Judith carefully and not just flooding them. These are patients that I'm a little more careful on my bolus rates. It might not be infusing it a liter over 10 minutes, do it a little slowly and more gently. Other things that you commonly see a sepsis. Patients come in with an infection and their SVR drops and suddenly they're not perfusing that LV and they can really decompensate. But there again, it's treating it with the stuff that we know how to do, pressors, fluids, antibiotics. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the one I see most commonly is these patients with known valves. Their cardiologist said, we can wait maybe next year. And then they get a pneumonia and they're decompensating. And what they need, they're going to need some degree of fluids, but you put the nail on the head. They need vasopressors to re get their coronary perfusion going again. And then all of a sudden their heart starts functioning again and they get markedly better. I have 100%. A, a hair trigger to just start them on vasopressors and then figure out the fluids as we go. But I cannot leave them where I would leave some patients at a map of 58. Oh, it's not so bad. For these patients, it may be so bad. 100%. All right. Step six, avoid intubation if possible. If you're not already scared to intubate a critical AS patient, then you do not understand this disease state. Speak a little bit about that, Trina. Absolutely. I think 
in general, intubating patients with cardiogenic shock is a terrifying experience. And I think long and hard about this process because sometimes it's unavoidable. If you can't avoid it, just realize that many of the things that we do with intubation can really cause decompensation in these patients. Even if you choose induction agents that are hemodynamically stable, you're still taking away their sympathetic drive. You're still placing them on positive pressure. And all of these things can cause significant decompensation. And I think the thing that would scare me some of the most about these, especially being someone who's already worked at those shops where you're the only doctor there and you're not only managing the intubation, but you're managing the hemodynamics. These are patients that you want to be really careful. You might even, if you're someone, if you're comfortable doing an awake intubation, awesome, good topicalization. If you're not comfortable with that, these might be the patients that you'll think about doing a delayed sequence intubation, not because of pre-oxygenation and all of that, but because so you can actually manage their hemodynamics and focus on that and then do the intubation, not to dive into that. But yeah, yeah, I would say uh, a topical awake, just as you say, is the safest way. And then don't convert them. Don't have such a desire to put them onto true mechanical ventilation. Let them spontaneously breathe on the vent and you'll be very much in keeping with where they were. You won't make them worse with that. Most people, they don't feel familiar enough. If you had to do something, and I'll mention only briefly, then a ketamine awake with a heavy fentanyl load to blunt the sympathetic tachycardia of the ketamine with a concurrent vasopressor running, shooting for a slightly higher than normal map than you even want them at post-intubation, is probably the safest you're going to get in a non-full topicalized awake. And people can refer to the other MCRIT episodes if they want more on that. All right, then step seven, which you might do concurrently with step one, but it just needs to be put somewhere in the list, is consult. So who are you consulting and what can these consultants provide for us? I think who you consult is going to definitely be dependent on your shop. I think more and more these patients that are coming in with critical aortic stenosis that are in cardiogenic shock, you want both cardio cardiac surgery to be involved, but you also want interventional cardiology. I think that cardiothoracic surgery is probably going to be the ones that are going to be crashing them onto mechanical circulatory support. If you need that, if you need VA ECMO or an axillary impella, but I think that more and more we have been moving away from surgically repairing their aortic valves during this acute shock. And in fact, moving towards transcatheter replacement. It is interesting. Studies have looked at this and obviously surgical aortic valves have pretty prohibitive risks in the setting of cardiogenic shock, but even transcatheter aortic valve implantation or is actually also has pretty significant risks during cardiogenic shock. There's been mortality linked as high as 33%. So most of the time with these patients, you're really trying to stabilize them with good medical therapy, plus or minus your mechanical circulatory support, and maybe even considering like a balloon valvuloplasty. There's often quick restenosis, but it's something that could help buy you some time until you can go in and do, you know, a transcatheter aortic valve implantation. It is a temporary solution, but if that temporary solution could bridge the patient to an operation, how many days do you get from that? I know it's going to restenose, but I've seen these patients get as, as a bridge to their operation through a valvuloplasty that they look like they're going to die when I first had them. Has that been your experience as well? No, I think that's absolutely correct. And I think you can get more than days. I think you can oftentimes on many of these people get weeks to even maybe a little more time. I think it's interesting because they're doing more and more studies and they've looked at this more and more. So it'll be interesting seeing kind of the data that comes out because some people also are reaching towards just going right for the TAVI too. So it'll be interesting over the next couple of years to see this is an awesome kind of field that's been expanding. Yeah, absolutely. And I think many of those deaths for both the open and, and transcatheter methods are induction. 
Yes. And the hemodynamics, keeping them alive during the operation. So as people get better at that, uh, and I just wonder if it won't be like the interventional cardiology, when you have a bad lesion, big left main, they're going to bridge them with mechanical circulatory support, which they don't do as often as I think they need to with these TAVIs, and therefore they die on table. And that just won't happen if they start them on VA ECMO, even for transcatheter. And I think that there's someone who likes VA ECMO as much as me, it's probably you. So I agree. I think it'll be interesting because I think in the future, as we're seeing more and more VA ECMO, I think too, we might see more of this because really it can be a great way of stabilizing these patients. I love it. Yeah, this is probably, probably you'll get it edited out because no one else will care except you and I. But there's this feeling in the CT surgery world that if you do VA ECMO, you got to go big or go nowhere. And it just drives me nuts because what we've learned from the eCPR world is you could put these patients on very small cannulae and bridge them so easily with such a low complication rate. But they put in these enormous catheters for a brief operation. And that's where all the friggin' problems come from. I don't understand. 100%. 100%. And then you start seeing the limb ischemia, the yep. compartment syndrome, exactly. and the horrible comorbidities, which yep. none of us want to see. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Is there anything else we missed that we should mention on the podcast, or should we just send them to the post? I think the post will tell you most of it, but I do want to just plug, always keep valvular heart disease on your differential when you see that patient come in with acute decompensated shock. And don't just write it off as non-cardiogenic when you look at the echo and feel like the EF looks remotely normal. I think that people forget over and over with valvular or structural or heart disease that your EF can look, can pass that eyeball test and make you feel like it's okay, but the cardiac etiology is still present. Yeah, the more I talk to you, the more I feel that someone needs to make a course just on valve interrogation for emergency medicine, because it's not taught in a easily accessible form. Lung ultrasound went through this real period of of people saying, we didn't get this, we want this. And then there were courses, there were people who just gave you a very concentrated, non-cardiologist focused way of learning lung ultrasound. I think that needs to happen to the valves. I think people need I this. I could not agree more. <laughs> Maybe you 100%. should be the one. Let's see. All right. I can't thank you enough, Trina. What are you thinking as our next topics in your mind? You don't have to pin it down right now, but what other things are percolating around that brilliant brain of yours? So definitely multiple things that have been percolating. One of the things I've been thinking about is some LVAD emergencies Mm. with more and more HeartMate threes being implanted. I think we're going to see more and more of these showing up to small shops. And I think that they can be terrifying to those of us who even know them well, much less to people who don't see them regularly. So that's definitely one thing. And then one of our astute listeners mentioned a hemodynamics talk, and I think that could be fantastic. So definitely have some more things in the hopper that I would like to bring out. So we'll see. All right. I love it. Okay. There you go. More to come on CVMCRIT, cardiovascular MCRIT. If you're interested in coaching, mcrit.org slash coaching. If you're interested in joining, mcrit.org slash join. This has been Scott Weingart for the MCRIT podcast saying bye-bye. Physician CME for the MCRIT podcast is provided by ebmedicine.net. Providers of the best evidence-based medicine, emergency medicine publications out there. If you're interested in their stuff, ebmedicine.net slash MCRIT.